from Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Van Chee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my special co-host, Alicia Pappas. How are you? I'm well, Jason. How are you? I'm not sure why I'm special, though. Well, you're I'm... special because um, yeah, we don't often get to uh, co-host podcasts together, right? I'm uh, too busy doing it with Joel usually. Yeah, I've stepped down, haven't I? It's been a while. It has been a while. So mm. uh, I know you've been very busy delivering all of our important client work, so it's good to get you away from that and actually doing something uh, behind the microphone. Yes, I've missed it. I've missed uh, speaking to our guests. So, um, yeah. Yes, I've been keeping it It's going to be juicy today. Not juicy, but it's a, it's a um, topic that I um, really want to kind of go into because we haven't really had an episode like this or this type of topic discussed before on the podcast. So, um, yeah, it'll be good. Yeah, it's all right. We can get Jack to delete that juicy comment. Um, that's fine. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it is a different episode today. Um, and we'll fast track it out to, uh, the audience, um, uh, as an, as a, uh, extra episode, um, to make sure it's still topical and relevant. Um, but you've been keeping well, Alicia? I have been keeping well. I'm planning my trip overseas. So it's keeping me focused on something positive. That's right. We're all very jealous. Where are you going? To the Greek islands in six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And you're uh, did were you born in Greece or is that just your heritage? No, I, I was born in Australia, Jason. I have Greek heritage, true. But yes, I haven't been there for a number of years. So I'm meeting my friend who lives in New York and we're arriving on the same day and it'll be a fun trip. Yeah, lots of eating, drinking, and sunshine, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Uh, all right, so like I said, um, it is a bit of a different episode today. Uh, so with us today to explore this event through a psych health and safety lens is a very good friend of the podcast and actually someone who is local here in Perth, Dr. Rebecca McCulloch. How are you today, Dr. Bex? I'm fabulous. Look, you two make me laugh, honestly. It's such a pleasure <laughs> to sit down and chat with both of you. Um, I'm actually in, uh, well, today was sunshiny, not so much yesterday when I flew in Sydney. So tuning in from the hotel room, a little bit blustery, must admit, must admit. My plane may or may not have circled around quite some time before it could land last night, but that's okay. Yeah, I had an early start myself this morning. It was dark and I think negative degrees, which is one of the signs of the apocalypse in Perth. Um, yeah, when it gets down to below zero, which never happens. Yeah, it was it was interesting because a couple of my clients and friends who haven't been uh, to Sydney since pre, pre-COVID. I was literally in Sydney last, uh, the week that one, Respect at Work, dropped uh, to the public audience, so in March uh 2020 and uh, literally sort of escaped um sydney on a domestic flight just before things started locking down so it was 
it's been a while since I've been here. But they said to me, it's been really chilly in um, Sydney. Make sure you make sure you've got something warm to wear when you get off the plane. And um, I might have boarded the plane in like a giant puffer jacket because it was three degrees when I left the house in Perth to go and get on the plane. Thinking, hmm, tell me that you haven't been to Perth in winter without telling me you haven't been to Perth in winter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, puffer jackets are not uh, that common, unlike uh, obviously in Hobart where you feel like the whole um, country or the whole state is uh, sponsored by Kathmandu. Um, yes. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I looked like I was going Hobart. skiing or something. I like snow skiing. <laughs> Yeah, um, Joelle's in Wellington today, actually, so I'm sure she's nice and uh, cold there at the moment. If it's this cold in Perth, it's got to be freezing uh, in Wellington at the moment. Um, but look, Beck, really um, glad to have you on again. Um, love it that you're a regular now of the podcast, we could say. Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to this interesting topic we're going to be discussing. Yeah, so I might just give some background on how we came together to discuss today's, um, well, one, we're, we're going to do a bit of a case study or a case reflection. Um, um, but Dr. Beck's made a, an interesting post on LinkedIn a month ago, post um, this case that we'll just uh, review quickly just to give you some context. Um, so the so the, the incident, workplace incident um, that Beck posted about was um, some of our listeners might be familiar with it. So last month, um, a police officer, um, basically police were called to a nursing home um, early hours of the morning um, because a, a resident, an elderly resident with dementia um, was displaying some um, behavioural problems. Um, so the police attended and a police officer ended up um, tasering the elderly resident um, with dementia. She was 95. Um, unfortunately, the uh, resident um, fell as a result of the tasering um, and sustained a head injury and died in um, hospital about a week after the incident. Um, so there's been quite a lot of media attention about this um, workplace incident. Um, the immediate response was that the police officer um, involved uh, was um, suspended without pay or has been suspended without pay because now obviously there's an investigation that needs to happen. Um, and I suppose um, Beck made a really interesting point on the post um, around, you know, what we really need to do is um, understand the contributing factors as to why this occurred versus, you know, on face value, just assuming that um, the the police officer, um, you know, is just totally at fault and did the wrong thing and now um, should be disciplined or um, something, you know, adverse needs to happen. So um, that's that's a bit of background to um, the case, like a case, bit of a case study. But we're really focusing on, you know, when a when a workplace incident occurs, um, and there's perhaps been some poor decision making. Um, you know, we need to understand why that's occurred versus jumping the gun and um, just assuming that the the person or the employee um, was in the wrong. So Beck, um, for people that I know a lot of you had a bit of interest in your or comments on your uh, <laughs> lots of likes and insightful emojis um, clicking off. Um, 
maybe just for people listening, um, just go through some of the contributing fact- factors that you mentioned. So in the, from the um, psychosocial factor perspective, um, what, what are some factors that may have been implicated in, in the end result? Yeah, so I guess when I was reading um, about this particular incident, and I do think it's quite a serious incident. At the end of the day, somebody did lose their life, and I think it would be good if we maintain a lot of respect about that because it's a pretty significant incident. But uh, the officer in question has been reportedly slid down with pay, um, and we can only really go on what we've, we've, we've heard and seen in the media. So my comments today are not necessarily about that case per se. Um, It's really about the sort of thought process that I went through when I was reading about it and I was thinking, well, how might somebody make what appears on face value in this case to be a poor poor decision? Um, You know, let's unpack that. I mean, how does that actually happen? And we'll talk, I think, a little bit later about ICAM, which is really about why and how. And... I was thinking about it and I was thinking I can like I can imagine how an investigation into an incident like this might become quite specific quite quickly and by that I mean it might be honed down to you know in this circumstance did the employee follow protocol or follow um, policy and procedure about you know use of a given instrument or piece of equipment or anything else like that. So in this case, it was a taser. Um, you know, if there's rules around how that's used, did the employee follow those rules or not follow those rules? And that could be a very narrow-minded kind of investigation into an incident. And I was thinking, I, I immediately think a little bit more broad than that. And I thought, well, I there's a range of, there's a range of things loosely wrapped up in in, in stress-related processes that might be in play here, and I wonder if questions will be asked about those things. And if we bring it into the context of what we normally talk about, which is like psychosocial risk and psychosocial hazard exposures, there were a number of things that I immediately thought of that might have played into a decision in that context. Um, And so the LinkedIn post was kind of, a, I guess, in some ways, um, a, a, a bit of a... Uh, verbalization in technical terms, you know, typing through of the sorts of things that I would consider if I was investigating these sorts of incidences. And there are a range of psychosocial hazards or risk factors in there that I thought was relevant. And uh, I think off the top of the head, sort of the, the, the five main ones that I raised were around uh, the officer and or officers in question um, looking at things like fatigue and shift work impacts and how they affect decision making. I was thinking about cognitive load and and load in general in terms of what has happened um, over that shift, the complexity of the task that the, that person had completed, what resources they might still have had available versus not being available to make good decisions, um, emotional loads and emotional demands, particularly in a in a, an emergency situation where there might be a high level of threat. And, you know, if we unpack that even further, we can look at trauma impacts and what trauma, previous trauma might have, um, how that might have played into it. I thought about agency 
um, in terms of, you know, if there's protocols in place, you know, to what, to what degree can a person flex that under a set of circumstances? So if you look at, say, for, again, separate to this incident, if we look at what the protocols may or may not be in terms of taser use, there might be some critical touch points, like the person is threatening to harm um, themselves or others. There's, you know, verbal aggression going on with it. They are armed with some sort of implement or, or weapon that could cause quite significant harm if it was used, you know, and they're in a forward motion. So they're, you know, progressing towards people that we need to try to protect. And I was wondering about the protocols and agency to, you know, if extraneous, you know, perhaps to protocol, there might be extraneous information that might be relevant and whether there's flexibility there to show some decision latitude to go. I think under the circumstance, perhaps, even though the boxes are ticked to go down a certain route, um, perhaps that's not appropriate in these circumstances. I was really interested in, you know, what if a person did break protocol per se in a circumstance like this, thinking that that would get a better result, perhaps a safer result? Um, and let's just say that they made a decision at the time with that intention, but it didn't work out to be safer. What, you know, what the organisation response might be to that, because that weighs into a decision about whether we would break protocol or not. And even things around psychological safety in, in terms of, you know, was, you know, if we're working with people we trust and we know that they've got our backs, we might make a slightly different risk-based decision at the time in a really high-pressure situation. So there was a lot that I was thinking about and I was sort of trying to unpack it and my LinkedIn post was really trying to encourage other people to think about the stuff that happens before a decision gets made and when a decision gets made, then it flows into behaviour, right? So, you know, if we reflect back and say, look, on face value, in this case, it, you might think, well, it seems to be a poor decision. Um, understanding, you know, why why do people make these decisions i mean employees don't make errors in vacuums they don't make decisions in vacuums so yes some people will, will choose deliberately um and intentionally to make some pretty poor decisions um but i find in in most of the work that i do that there's usually some drivers that sit behind that and rather than getting really narrow-minded about you know, is this about did somebody follow protocol, for example, or not? Let's unpack why and how. If we want to prevent a reoccurrence, we need to understand why it happened and how it happened. So that was kind of the rationale for it. Yeah, and, and I guess that's what um, health and safety have learned a lot, right? Like if you just go, well, that's just someone making a bad decision, um, you miss out on opportunities to learn from incidents and learn how systemically, I guess, they can be prevented rather than just, you know, waiting for an individual again to make another bad decision. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to unpacking that um, a little bit later. But I, I guess I'm, I'm interested, um, Beck, with how these incidents are typically managed when something like this happens. Look... I think a fairly typical response is it's a significant incident. I mean, um, it was it was very apparent quite early on in this particular uh, scenario um, 
that harm was caused and it was likely to be um, quite serious harm and as it turned out to be fatal harm. And so I think if, you know, if we, if we switch this scenario out of that kind of context and put it in something like mining, I think it's something that would be looked at quite closely. So I think to have an organisational response that's um, immediate and is well constructed is really important. Um, this is not the sort of thing that you can let just sort of sit for a few days. That you know we kind of need to to get onto it pretty pretty soon. So I mean I guess when I think about immediate reactions. Um, it's a traumatic incident for everybody and anybody involved. So if we think about psych risk and we think about it, you know, even in this case, if we, if we revert back to thinking about the people who are perhaps in the facility at the time that it happened, um, we think about vicarious trauma impacts on them, so on and so forth. There's, there's, there's kind of a crisis response that really needs to happen. Um, and then it's, you know, you touched on learning, Jason. I think that's so important is if an incident has occurred and there's been a pretty drastic um, outcome, and in this case a fatality, I think if there's anything that can come out of it, and I won't call it a silver lining because I think that this is bollocks calling it a silver lining, but I think we are flawed if we don't learn. And what we need to do then is as part of the investigation and everything else is to look for what can we learn out of this incident. We can't prevent reoccurrences if we don't understand the drivers of behaviours and decision making and so on and so forth. So yeah, I think I think we need to unpack that. Yeah. Um, and, and so you, you mentioned, uh, obviously, there would be impacts on the police officer, uh, people who witness the, um, the incident, they'd have exposure to trauma. Um, people uh, experiencing counselling would uh, potentially pass on vicarious trauma to people doing the counselling. Um, there's a, a lot of flow-on effects. Any other ones that you can think of um, in relation to this particular incident? I'm, I'm sort of interested also in... When we think about these incidences and, and investigating, I'm thinking about, and I mentioned earlier, like the ICAM approach, which is really about how do we understand how this incident occurred? I think it's very easy to get very narrow-minded very quickly um, and go, somebody broke the rules, the rules are there for a reason. It's as simple as that. I think as safety professionals, when we look at people's behaviour, like I said, it doesn't occur in a vacuum. Mistakes don't occur in a vacuum and we need to understand systems. And if all we're doing is focusing in on what an individual worker did, we're really missing that opportunity that has arisen out of a very bad situation to go, okay, how do we do things new, better, different, right? And ICAM is really about that. Um, I work with some mining clients and it's really refreshing to watch how they unpack um, quite serious incidences. And this includes near hits. It's not even near misses. It's near hits. So 
an incident that's that's occurred that didn't necessarily result in a fatality or a serious injury, but very easily could have. Um, and it's by you know, you know, the the grace of pure fortune that it didn't result in a really bad outcome for somebody or multiple people. So I think the ICAM methodology is something that we could deploy more often to go, let's really, let's like peel the layers off the onion. Let's not go with the easy solution. Somebody made a bad call, they're a bad egg, move on, we've disciplined them, we've fired them, we've whatever it is we've done with them, right? Flick that off to the side. Let's look at systems-based stuff. Why did it actually happen? And that, to me, is way more useful in trying to prevent it occurring again. Hi, listeners. Jason here. We hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode. Now, if you're like Joelle, Alicia, and myself and enjoy learning from the best, then the Flourish DX Academy is for you. The Academy includes free e-learning courses on the ISO 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all Flourish DX Academy courses included within the Flourish DX mobile app. Select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety Podcast and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. Get started with Flourish DX for free at www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode. Yeah, we don't really know, you know, the investigation process that um, New South Wales police is going to undertake or what's happening at the moment. I mean, we, everyone yeah. can make assumptions. We don't know. Um, but um, for I, before your um, post, I didn't know what – I hadn't heard of ICAM as a methodology before because um, just I hadn't come across it. So um, for anyone that's not aware, um, like Beck said, it's it's commonly used in um, certain industries um, – um, to investigate accidents and incidents and emissions, um, especially in the mining industry. So it stands for Incident Cause Analysis Method. So it's basically looking at, you know, root cause analysis. Um, so, yeah, I was really interested in, um, you know, understanding a bit more, um, like I said, we don't know what the investigation process is, but if we were to use something like ICAM for this particular case, um, what would that actually look like and how might it be beneficial? I think what's really beneficial about ICAM is it's not blame orientated. Like if you want to, you know, so often what we do in terms of disciplining a worker is blame orientated. And I think that if we, again, if we want to mature in our responses to these sorts of incidences and even mature in our preventative mechanisms, understanding drivers is so important. So if you've got... um, if you have an incident, and like I said, even in mining, they look at things that are near hits. It's not like, you know, escape that by the skin of my teeth. They actually look at it quite closely. And it's about unpacking the individuals and individual decision-making that might have occurred. It's looking at environmental factors. It's looking at supervisor support. It's looking at organisational processes and policies. And it's really trying to go, okay, 
if we take a bigger picture view and we peel back the layers of the onion, rather than just going, somebody made a decision that resulted in a behaviour and the outcome of that behaviour was X, it really goes back and goes back and goes back and says, well, okay, what prompted those behaviours? What um, what might have been behind that decision-making process? And do you know what? We're all human. We're going to we're going to stuff up sometimes, right? The best of us will stuff up sometimes. If we're fatigued, we're going to stuff up, right? So we've got the, you know, we've got the research on things like if you drive fatigued, it's like you driving with a couple of standard drinks in you, right? So if you're looking at people who are working in shift work scenarios, if they're the tail end of a shift, let alone the tail end of a swing of things like night shift, Okay, if we bring it into the codes of practice around psych, psych, uh, psychosocial hazards and risks, we know that shift work is an issue. We know that fatigue that results out of it is an issue. Um, so you've got things like that. You've got, you know, yes, a person might have their own personality characteristics or anything. They might be more risk averse or risk savvy or risk pro you know there's there's some of us that like jumping out of planes um you know for a laugh but those people are actually pretty risk savvy people risk averse people the the amount of mitigations that get put into place that makes them feel safe enough to jump out of a plane is pretty incredible so you know if we use the ICAM methodology it's really about understanding root cause and then contributing causes. So it's looking at how all of these things intersect together. So rather than, A, laying blame and making it a blame-based issue, because what do we learn out of blame? Somebody gets held accountable, gets punished, whatever. Everybody moves on. What do we learn? Not a lot, right? So if we unpack this and we go, well, there are actually these organisational factors that fed into that. There were roster-based things, there were shift-based things, there were task-based things, there was load-based things, there were all these psychosocial hazard exposure-based things um, that fed into it. There's some cultural stuff in terms of psychological safety um, and feeling protected with a crew member that you're working with. Things like that. I mean, I used to work as an ambulance officer and every now and again, um, somebody would need a shift build or something like that and I'd be working with a crew member that I don't normally work with. And it was different. It was just different, right? There were the people that you worked with all the time and you knew them really well and you knew they had that, they had your back and they knew that if, you know, under a high load environment, so we think high emotional load, high stress load, high cognitive load, time, everything's mixed in there. Like seriously, if you're resourcing somebody, the load is real, right? But knowing you've got a crew member that's got your back, they're going to predict that you need uh, a new oxygen tank. They're going to predict you need a new mask. They're going to predict you need another, um, you know, layered airway, whatever it is. And they're going to really assist you. That makes that load so much easier to manage. So even being in an environment where you're working with somebody you're really familiar with, and we don't know in this particular police incident, we don't know what that history was with with the other person who was in involved my understanding is there were two officers involved we don't know the nature of that relationship and we don't know the nature of the psychological safety that may or may not have been present 
But, it, you know, you can imagine that if you're in a scenario where you know somebody's got your back, you can think a little bit more clearly, you can pull yourself back a little bit, you're reducing your stress just that little bit, and you will make better decisions. If you're in a scenario where you're working with somebody who's very unfamiliar, you don't know if you can speak to them, you don't know if you can trust them, you know, all of those things. You can imagine that the stress load is even higher. So you're looking at really intense load situations and I think that what ICAN helps us do is go, let's take it out of the individual decision and let's look at the nature of the other people involved. Let's look at the nature of the context involved. Let's look at the nature of organisational pressures involved. Let's look at the nature of policies and procedures involved. And let's really unpack it. And instead of just going with one blame kind of scenario, let's actually understand the root causes. And, and that's why I like it. I think it's just, we can learn so much more out of it. Yeah. Um, really interesting, Beck. And uh, I guess what we're hopefully going to see is that there is some procedural justice here and that they're going to be looking at the systems and not the just the end result, which was the individual's behaviour and, you know, a poor decision at the end of the day. So... Let's talk about the disciplinary action that is often taken following an incident or following poor performance more broadly, I guess. Um, so in response, the discipline worker may make a grievance or bullying complaint, and then that would be assumed to be vexatious. Uh, rather than disciplinary action as a first course of action, what should employers um, be doing, I guess, in this instance? Yeah, so um, some of the work that I do with, with, with clients, we look at the nature of because I do quite a bit in that bullying, harassment um, kind of kind of space, is that there is an assumption that goes with um, temporal aspects. And by that, what I mean is that a employee, so a worker has been pulled in for legitimate, often legitimate um, performance issues and they're on a PIP, performance improvement plan, or, or, or some sort of process of that nature. And um, then they lodge a bullying, under the HR lens, it's a, a bullying grievance, for example. I would encourage our listeners to go, it's not a grievance, it's a hazard report, okay? All right, let's change, change the lens there. Um, but because that person has already been identified as being not performing to an acceptable standard um, and and then they've raised these concerns is that the assumption is it's vexatious. Um, it, the other words that might be used is frivolous or false, right? So vexatious is really about a very deliberate attempt to counteract any performance um, processes that might be in train and, and, and kind of thwart them, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of a tit for tat, I guess, is one way we could think about it. Um, and so, you know, if we actually take this into another whole, whole space and another whole podcast and trauma informed, um, hazard disclosure management, right? Is that a person who comes forward with these sorts of 
reports is often extraordinarily stressed, okay? So it may well be in that scenario where somebody's being disciplined. So, you know, they've made a, they've made a task error. So if we went back to the original case, you might say that's a task-related error. That's one aspect of job performance. There are other aspects, presente- uh, being present and involved in your job, absenteeism, staying with the organisation, a whole range of other things. Right. So if we look at job performance in general, it might be that they're not performing in some way, shape or form. They've been pulled in because they're not performing. They've been put on a provisional improvement plan, some sort of performance management process, and then they've come out with a bullying, harassment, something of the flavour um, kind of claim. And if you dismiss it immediately, you're failing to actually understand the stress and trauma that's attached to those experiences. So a person who has legitimately been bullied, harassed, overworked within an inch of their life, um, that has, you know, if we look at a whole range of psychosocial hazard exposures um, and their potential risk attached to it, um, you know, they are working shift work. They are doing a whole bunch of things that we would consider potentially hazardous and, and, and risky. And they're in a scenario where they're now being pulled in. You can add another hazard exposure to that because you can say now they're being performance managed, their job is at risk, they're experiencing job insecurity. Okay, and if you haven't read the codes of practice that are currently out, job insecurity is in there. It's very explicit. And, you know, and they think, well, I've not felt comfortable raising any of these issues uh, previously and now I'm going to raise them. And and so, but then it seems like the automatic reaction is, well, this is vexatious. It's just in response to the fact you're a rubbish performer and, um now you've been pulled up on it and now you're just trying to thwart the process. I'm like, no, let's unpack. Again, let's do an ICAM style thing. Let's go back and peel back the onion and peel back the onion and peel back the onion, right? Let's assume it's a pretty big assumption sometimes. You've hired really competent, willing and able people for a role and they were performing before X, right? Now they're not. There's usually a driver for them not performing. So if we go back and back and back, let's understand what's actually behind the non-performance. And it may well be that we know that people who are subjected to chronic overwork, who are very fatigued and are struggling with shift work or overwork or any of those things, that are in a role that is perhaps they might have been promoted into a role that is beyond them. Um, their current capabilities are not offered um, support and training to succeed in that role. Uh, they are being bullied. They are being harassed. Those people will make errors. It's really as simple as that. When we're that stressed, we don't make good decisions generally. And we do have task errors. And we do have job performance issues. So if you only look at a person who's been pulled in for job performance issues and your immediate go-to is the worker, 
my go-to in HR was always look at the supervisor. Is this person getting feedback on their role? Are they getting redirection? Are they getting praise and recognition? All of those things. This, and that's assuming the person is competent. Like you've hired a competent person into the role. If you haven't hired a competent person in the role, again, let's go back a layer. How have you managed to get somebody into this role that perhaps isn't suitable for the role? And yes, they're making task errors. Yes, they're not performing. But why did that happen? Right? So I guess it's, it's quite a long-winded kind of explanation of like, let's always go back. Don't just assume because a person has lodged a bullying or harassment or whatever claim after being pulled in for non-performance. Don't assume that it's vexatious. It might literally be that that person has been very silent about a whole range of hazard exposures and subsequent risk to them that's manifested in stress-related symptoms. And it's only once their job is on the line that they've decided to speak up about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting as well. I'm just thinking of the um, the case and the officer in question. It's now, you know, they're on face value, they've done something, they're in the wrong or they've made a poor decision or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I even heard, you know, there's been a, um, a few people saying just, you know, in terms of the response, what's required without doing what you're saying, without looking at root causes, um, the person's, you know, the person was incompetent. Give them training to understand how to um, interact with uh, people with dementia um, to avoid this from happening again. That would be, you know, the the control to put in place to reduce the risk. And I'm like, well, that's an assumption you're making that the person doesn't, you know, one, hasn't had training or two, is incompetent, but you just don't know. Um like you're saying, all the factors that may have contributed um, uh, from a psychosocial perspective um, to the outcome. So, yeah, really important to um, consider that. Um, and I've seen it many times. This hap- Something like this happens and then the, the employee or the worker in question, um, they their mental health gets affected because you know, on face value, they're in the wrong and then the the situation gets handled in a way where they're to blame. There might be, um, you know, negative outcomes for them in terms of, I don't know, they might be put on, like you're saying, a performance plan or um, their job's on the line or whatever else. Um, and then what happens to that person? You're you're putting them at risk in terms of their mental health. So, um, yeah, it's it's you know, how do we go about this? So one, we mitigate the risk to, um, you know, in future, we mitigate the risk that this doesn't happen again. And two, we're mitigating the risk for, um, you know, the, the worker in question that, yes, may have made a poor decision, but what was the reason for that? And not to directly assume um, they're at fault. I think you've probably touched on a couple of things that are going to, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, catch PCBUs out in terms of the regs because you talked about sort of justice-related issues. And I think, again, it's probably a whole other conversation. 
but what you've tapped into is that when people are dealt with unfairly and there's really unfair decisions made in an organisation and, you know, incidents like this are just, you know, I guess they're right. We're not going to hypothesise on what may or may not happen, um, but the incident is right for those sorts of injustices to occur. And, you know, if we bring it back to to things around the current codes of practice that are in um they're in play in multiple jurisdictions across Australia um and, and pending in the others is that making sure we're doing a fair process and we're procedurally, distributedly, informationally, interactionally fair is actually very much in the psych hazard um space. And it's one of those things that we haven't really talked enough about. Um, we, we tend to focus on the big ticket items, the, the really obvious um, or, you know, it's, it's topical issues. Sexual harassment is, is, is very big at the moment, as, as it should be. Um, workplace aggression and violence and, and, and bullying have been in train for a bit of time. So um, I think in terms of with your listeners um, and if we relate it back to the ICAM process, if we deploy that kind of peel back the onion and understand why and how decisions might be made and incidents might occur, then we're really trying to, to make sure that we offer justice in many respects. So we're we're actually making sure that we don't, um, engage in another potential hazard exposure by making sure that we actually really look at these sorts of incidences in a really fair and transparent and reasonable fashion. Mm-hmm. So there's a little tip there. If you're not using something like a root cause analysis um, and you're very honed in to dispute kind of lensed, you know, target, accused kind of lenses, it's really not helpful. It's really not helpful. So if you go with something like an ICAM type of methodology, then there's a lot more room for growth, there's a lot more room for learning, and there's a lot more room for justice. And that actually removes or reduces another psych hazard exposure that might play out in these incidences. Beck, um, it's been quite an interesting discussion looking at this um, incident, which on face value, like you said, um, looks like it's an individual poor um, decision that was made. Uh, but when you look at it, well, there's obviously many psychosocial hazards that could have been at play uh, in the lead up to, during, and then post uh, the event as well. Uh, so we can, you know, it's, it's good putting it through a psych health and safety lens, but also thinking about it from a systemic lens. Uh, as we do in ICAM, you know, looking at the preceding uh, systemic uh, breakdowns rather than just uh, relying on individual behaviour. But um, it's been, um, yeah, a really interesting discussion with you, Beck. So uh, thanks for coming on and sharing with us. Thank you for having me. It's always such a pleasure. It really yeah. is. Oh, well, we'll have you again in the next week, eh? Hey? Totally. I'll get your people to talk to my people and your people can, and my people will talk to your people and, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll make, we'll it, we'll make it happen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, nice, nice. <laughs> no, thanks again, Beth. Uh, all right, listeners, well, that brings us to the end of the episode today. Remember, we do video these while we have our conversations with our guests, and you can catch the full video on the Flourish TX YouTube page. 
Um, you'll also find that we take snippets and put them on the FlourishTX LinkedIn page if you prefer the short form versus the long form. Um, you, while you're over on LinkedIn, uh, feel free to connect with Alicia, myself and Beck uh, directly. Uh, we're always happy to continue the conversation there, uh, either via the posts that we do or via direct message. Uh, so that brings us to the end today, listeners. We'll catch you next episode. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.